Uh, well, thank you, Greg and company, for leading, and also for the unexpected light show that we had this morning. Uh, we just need to time up those rhythms to hit the lights just right, and we'll, we'll nail it. Uh, but thank you very much for leading us through that and for being here this morning. Again, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and again, welcome to those online. Some of you know that a couple weeks ago, I had a little bit of a health scare. There, there's the lights. Whew. That, was a, that was a good timing, though, right there. I did have a little bit of a health scare. Some of you know that. Um, and it was uh, something that thankfully has turned out really well for me. So I have a clean bill of health and all that. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, but that happened on a Sunday night on my wife's birthday, actually. I got a chance to, to take an ambulance ride to the hospital. And, you know, on this side of things, grateful to be here. But the next day, um, that Monday, my daughter had a soccer game. And I remember feeling as I was going into the hospital via ambulance on Jen's birthday evening, I'm like, like this, this could not end well. You know, this, this, this is more serious than I think I want it to be right now in this moment. Now, thankfully, again, I have a clean bill of health and everything looks on the up and up for sure now. But I remember that Monday when we walked into um, the soccer field to, to watch my daughter's soccer game. And I remember thinking, and maybe you would feel the same way too. When you go th through something that's very traumatic, the next, <laughs> the next thing that you do that had seemed to be normal and just like, a given that I would be there Monday night, the next Monday, watching my daughter play in a soccer game, all of a sudden it feels like, in a fresh way, life is really a gift, right? Have you been there to that spot? Where you're like, man, I didn't know how this would turn out, but here I am. Have you been there? Because I remember that feeling walking in, almost like, like you're given another chance at things. And, and if you've been there, you know that this is true, that that moment, whatever that is, whatever you want to call that, whatever that part of you is, it's like, shoot, like things could have gone really south, but now I'm here and I'm, I'm alive, I'm good, I'm healthy. It's, that is a, it's, like a, it's like a little seedling that is precious and precarious because it needs to be protected because it doesn't take long for me and probably for you. Monday happens, and I'm so glad to be at the game, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and then Thursday, and then Friday, and now I'm two and a half weeks removed from the event, and it doesn't feel nearly as dramatic as it did that night, right? Because it's a precious and precarious thing to, to be in those moments, those mountaintop experiences, whether it's new love, and you fall in love, and all of a sudden you're like, man, she's awesome, and he's awesome, and you can conquer the world, and everything's amazing, and then a year later, or three months later, right? Or three years later, all of a sudden, those precious and kind of precarious moments, they just kind of fall away, right? Now, you may have heard it said, and you may have heard it said this way, that what you don't know can't hurt you. Anyone ever hear that? Hey, what you don't know can't hurt you. That's not true, of course, but, you know, we say that, right? But here's what I want to suggest this morning for us. It's not just that, but this is that what you did know can hurt you. What you did know can hurt you. In other words, what's in your past and what you're used to can hurt you in the present and in the future going forward. Like, what I did know about life is that life seems to be very routine, the dailyness of it all. Like, what I did know about, hey, tomorrow's going to be a given. You know, the next day is probably going to be a given as well. I'm planning for the future, and that's just the way it is. When you run into those moments where you realize, I don't know if I can plan for the future anymore, and then you're given that gift, it's like, well, the challenge is taking what is such a precious and precarious moment, when I take it back into my everyday life, the past and the world around me, what I did know, the way that I used to function, it doesn't give this little seedling any fertile soil to drop in and sink deep roots. Because what I did know and the way that I used to work is going to push out the gift that life felt like 
on Monday, October 11th, when I walked into that soccer stadium for that second time. Because what I did know, and what I do know, and what you know is that life is very daily. You can't get too high, you can't get too low, you just got to keep pushing through. What you did know can hurt you when you think about this in a spiritual sense, and this is what I want to talk about this morning. In a spiritual sense, there is a time, maybe for you, maybe this happened, and maybe it hasn't. Maybe you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you are not close to God at all. In fact, you're looking for him. You're wondering where he is in the middle of your space right now, and you just don't know how in the world to connect with him. It's a good space to be in. It's a space that, if we're honest, we all are in to different degrees. But when you're in that space and trying to find God and trying to connect to him, when you finally do make that connection, if you will, to God, and you finally are connecting with him, the, the reality is in the spiritual world, this principle holds true. That our world, I'm going to put it this way this morning, that in a world that's more comfortable with, with religion than faith, freedom in Christ doesn't grow naturally. If freedom in Christ is this precious, precarious idea that all of a sudden the way that you connect to God is simply, if I can put it this way, simply by grace, through faith in Christ alone. If that is this precious and precarious idea that gives you life, gives you joy, and gives you hope, if that is what it is, and then all of a sudden the reality is that we live in a world where that, that seedling doesn't grow naturally. It just doesn't, and the reason for that is because we live in a world, I believe, that's more comfortable with religion than faith. What I mean by that is this, we're more comfortable with following the routines. We're more comfortable setting up rules and regulations, saying this must be done on Sundays, and this must be done on Wednesdays, and this is how we're going to function here, this is what we're going to read, and how we're going to relate to one another, this is the values that we have to hold, these are the traditions that we have to hold. We're more comfortable with religion than faith, and in a world like that, where we, by default, I believe, that the wiring of the human heart is toward self-salvation. That we're going to be good enough and moral enough and ethical enough to find our way to connect to God. When someone presents the idea that freedom in Christ is faith alone in Him, that's how you'll connect to God. It is such a precious and precarious thing to hold this, to plant it in the soil, because what's in the soil are deep-rooted trees of tradition that have spread their roots deep, and it is hard for this idea to settle and grow, just like it's hard for me to maintain. What I know is true up here, life is a gift. It doesn't feel that much today as it did on October 11th. Paul wrote about this. Early follower of Jesus wrote about this in a letter that we're in called Galatians. Galatians is where we're going to go this morning, and I want to invite you to turn there with me to Galatians chapter 4, as he writes again to this church that's trying to figure out how they deal with their newfound faith in Christ. It's this new seed idea of joy and freedom in Christ, but they are living in a world which is full of big oak trees of tradition and heritage. And how can they plant this little precious, precarious idea deep into the soil and have it not be ruined by what has come before, because what they did know can hurt them in terms of their own faith. I want you to look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible near you, by the way, in the chairs around you there. And you'll find Galatians in the right two-thirds of your Bible. You can use the table of contents if you need to find that or just flip through it on your phone. But Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, is where we're going to be here this morning. Paul writes there in verse 8, he says, Formerly, 
when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Let's pause on that for a second. What he's saying at the beginning of this is that you had a past view. In other words, there was a time when you didn't know God. There was a time when you were unaware of who he was, and then in that moment, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, there was a season in life, maybe for you, maybe your family of, of origin. You were raised by saying that the person who wins the argument is the one who's the loudest in the room. The best yeller, the best arguer, the best influencer in the room, they're the ones who win the argument. And then you come to faith in Christ and you realize all of a sudden like there's a different ethic to this. The goal isn't to win and pound you into the ground at all costs. There's a value of love under that in which I must love even my enemies. But Paul's saying you may have been raised with this value of winning, but all of a sudden you come to faith in Christ in which we've got to figure out how love works in the middle of the conflicts that we have. Maybe you grew up in a family of origin or even a church of origin where you realize that, you know, there's certain things that are forgivable and there's some things that simply are not. A lot of those ugly, unforgivable, ethical things are right in front of you, right in front of me. And we feel it in our culture, don't we? For some, it's homosexuality. That's an easy one to feel like is unforgivable for some. For some, it's, you know, it's other forms of of alcoholism or abuse or whatever you may want to call it. There are some deep and troubling and difficult things that for the church, for some people, it has felt like those things are unforgivable. And yet Jesus comes into the scene and he says to all of us, he says, how many times should you forgive? How about seven times, the disciple says. And Jesus is like, good try. How about I introduce to you this idea that it's 70 times seven that you should forgive, even those who deeply offend you. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying there is a past that people have. When you didn't know God, you were a slave to the way that you used to see the world. He's just acknowledging that we all have that, and the Galatians had that. There was a way that you've been raised, there's a way that you saw the world, and now we have a new way of seeing it. He says, formerly, what you did know, and this is where I say, what you did know can hurt you, because what you did know can come sliding into the present and impact the way you see faith right now. Verse 9, he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This is a great verse. If you underline stuff in your Bible or take notes, I'd encourage you to underline the phrase weak and miserable forces. What he's saying is you had a past, you knew God, you were known by him. How is it that now that you have this precious, precarious idea of faith alone in Christ is how I connect to God? Now that you have that, why in the world are you turning back to those weak and miserable forces that you used to believe were true? How is it that you're going back? And I can have, I relate to that. I don't feel the same way today that I did on October 11th, the day after I came out of the hospital, just the way the world works. We go back into our routines. He's speaking to them directly about these weak and miserable forces. If you're tracking along, you're wondering, what are those weak and miserable forces? He's very clear with them. Verse 10, here's how he describes those weak and miserable forces. He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, verse 11 says, that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And that's it. Like, that's it. That's it. Verse 10. You are observing, he says, special days and months and seasons and years. 
That's it? That's as bad as it gets, Paul? Well, yeah, that's it. What does he mean by that? Special days, he says, months, seasons, years. What he's saying is the, the totality of the Jewish calendar, special days, you're observing the Sabbath again. You're observing the Passover again. You're observing the Feast of Tabernacles again. Monthly, you're looking at new moon festivals. Yearly, you're looking at the, the year of Jubilee. What he's doing is he's taking the totality of the Jewish calendar and saying all of these things, you're being reintroduced to them, saying, yeah, take faith in Christ and then come right on back to what used to be. Now, let's, let's settle on this just for a second. If you don't know, these things that I mentioned, the Sabbath, the Passover, the day of Pentecost, the t day of Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, the New Moon Festivals, the Year of Jubilee, these things, these things are either directly commanded by God in the Old Testament or given or, or happened as a blessing under God's oversight in the Old Testament. In other words, these are not bad things. Every one of these things has incredible value to the person who experienced them. In fact, they defined meaning for an entire generation. It's not as if the Jews are introducing to the Gentiles some kind of completely made-up, man-made, artificial new thing that they have to do, like run around the church building three times, right, and, you know, make sure that you don't eat any, uh, you know, eat only white bread and not wheat bread, and let's just come up with some new rules. They're not making up any new rules. They're just saying there are ways that God, and they'd be right to argue this, that God has always wanted to connect to his people. Let me be clear. Here's what it is. You should, good grief, isn't the Sabbath one of the Ten Commandments? Shouldn't you follow the Ten Commandments? Shouldn't they be in our schools, right? You know what Paul calls that? A weak and miserable force. It's a force. It pulls you in. It draws you. It tries to hold you as if somehow if you kept the Sabbath in the right way, maybe if you kept all the Ten Commandments, maybe, 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 maybe if you could observe the Passover the way it was really meant to be, maybe if you could set up in the Feast of Tabernacles, you could remember that, that God is present in the middle of your chaos. Maybe if you could set that up, maybe then if you could do all these right things, then God will be close to you. Paul calls even the things that God set up in the Old Testament weak and miserable forces. That's powerful for this church to hear that. Because these are not bad things. And then Paul realizes, I think, the tension in the room. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to confront a parent or a grandparent especially? Confront may be a strong word. Have you ever tried to influence a family member to convince them that something that they have held on to for 20, 40, 80 years might be changing? You ever try to convince someone of that? Because if you ever have, you can get pushback of like, well, no, I don't, I don't want to listen to you. In fact, if you're going to introduce something to me that isn't right anymore, like, uh, I'm not sure I can track with you. And Paul says it this way in verse 16. Look at there with me. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's like, friends, I'm telling you some hard things. It's truth. I'm not trying to be your enemy, but I am trying to tell you the truth. 
Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Because telling the truth can be hard, and we can push really hard against that. Then what he does is he tries to clarify further. In the next several verses, even down through verse 30, I'm going to summarize them for us. It's almost as if Paul is sitting there and saying, okay, I know these people think they're children of Abraham. And in the Jewish world, they trace their lineage and faith all the way back to Abraham. And so he, what he does in verses 21 to 30 is he tells the story again of Abraham. And he says, let's just talk about this for a minute. Let me, let me back off my hard push. Let me back off for a minute. I'll tell you, we're children of Abraham, but do you know that Abraham had two sons through two different women? He said Hagar was the slave woman, and Ishmael was her son. But Hagar had a wife whose name was Sarah, and, and Isaac was his son. And so he said, I want you to know that there were two, two women. One is a slave woman, and one is a free woman. And Paul uses this analogy, and he says, friends, you are no longer a child of the slave woman, but of the free woman. But you're still a child of Abraham that I don't want to take away your heritage from you. I don't want to take away where you trace yourself from, but I want you to know the promise of God didn't come through the slave woman's son. The promise of God came through the free woman's son. And you are children of that promise. You are children of the free woman. In fact, he puts it that way in verse 31. Look there with me. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And the challenge for everybody is that there's a challenge to figure out, <laughs> am I a child of the slave or am I a child of the free woman? And here's the challenge, it's this, is that the enslaved one cannot distinguish the traditions of men from the commands of God. The enslaved one has a hard time distinguishing the traditions of men from the commands of God. The enslaved one is enslaved. And when you're enslaved, and when I'm enslaved, I can't help but see the traditions of man that are right in front of me, almost as if they are rules to follow. But as Paul will argue, these are weak and miserable forces, even things that maybe for you and maybe for me have guided for a long time how I worship, how I perceive God, and how I engage with him. If I can step back for a minute in the history of this church, what I have in front of me here is a book that some of you are familiar with, and if you're not This would be good, fun reading for those who have been around Grace Point for a little while. This is the story of Paradise Mennonite Church from 1735 to 1985. We're missing a few years between 1985 and now. But this is good reading, my friends. It really is. If I had lights, I could actually see it so I could read it here. Just kidding. You guys have tried a ton. Thank you for that. Let me read this to you because I want you to know where we were as a church for a long time. Check this out. The first meeting house of 1807 was very small and would have been crowded with 75 people in the room. The preachers met in the anteroom, which I don't even know what that is, but anyway, it must be a separate room, before the service and decided who was going to preach. Most ministers did not carry Bibles, but used the large Bible on the pulpit. A large preacher's Bible was on the pulpit at Paradise until 1968. If a visiting minister was present, he was expected to preach. I guess which is why we always invited visiting ministers. I don't know. The practice continued until the 1950s, and Amos Weaver said that he had the same sermon prepared for four Sundays, but didn't get to preach because of visiting ministers. 
The service began with one man announcing a song, and then all the men sitting around the singer's table would lead the singing sitting down. The ministers entered near the end of the second song. A more dramatic entrance that way. The congregation sang in German in unison in a chanting fashion. So if you don't mind picking up your game, that would be great. The first minister would read the text and comment on it for 20 or 30 minutes. That's just comments. This is called the opening or first sermon. Another preacher then gave the second sermon, which lasted an hour. Can we get a yay and amen for that? The early preachers did not use notes, but relied on the Holy Spirit to give them utterance. This practice ended around 1900, but George Graham continued to preach without notes until the 50s. The worship service lasted at least two hours. Testimony followed the sermon, then a long prayer and a benediction. Two German songs followed the benediction. Evidently, the prayer was typically five minutes, but at one point, someone prayed, <laughs> as this thing records, someone at the end got up from kneeling in prayer and said, wow, that set a record, eight minutes. I think that was the spirit of the prayer for sure. After the service, the members visited with each other and usually went to each other's homes for Sunday dinner. And finally this, services were held at Paradise only once a month until 1888. Paradise Mennonites went to church every other Sunday. They attended services at Strasburg or Hershey's once a month in addition to the monthly meetings at Paradise. Friends, I have no critique of that whatsoever. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't feel in any way upset by what they did, but can you imagine the difference in worship practice between then and now? And can you also imagine people sitting in those pews or in those seats, whatever in the world they were, feeling very much like this is the only way to connect with God, right? We should sing in German because if you track this book, there is a fight in the church that's going from German to English. Because German is the way that we connect with God, and even if we can't understand it, I guess it feels more spiritual. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, there was a fight in there for that. And that worship was only once a month, right? Some of you may be like, yeah, that's kind of cool. We could try that. And then every other week, you know, they go to different places. And the traditions of men that get handed down can sometimes get planted in the, the soil of all of our hearts, and they can just sit there like big oak trees and settle out. And we can think, and all of us can think, including today, we can think, this is the way to connect with God. This is the way that I'm going to be justified before God. This is the way that I'll engage with him if I'm consistent enough, if I'm faithful enough, if I come you know, every week. But there was a time when you couldn't even come every week because we weren't open every week. And so Paul calls all of this stuff as weak and miserable forces. If, 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 hear me on the if, please hear me on the if, if they're elevated to ultimate, if they're elevated to ultimate, if they're elevated to the things that we think actually connect us to God, because what justifies all of us is faith in Christ alone. Now, these things, these worship things are surface level issues. Friends, it gets deeper and more personal if we're willing to look. If any of you have tracked recently with um, the, the evangelical church on the whole, the Christian church on the whole, you, you may have heard of the term purity culture, right? And you may have seen recently that within our younger generation in particular, there is a, a reaction to what is being called the purity culture. And there's people leaving the church over this issue, feeling like the church is too tight in its morality and its ethics. 
The, the purity culture, understanding where this came from. In the 1990s, the culture in North America, the children of the 1960s sexual revolution were growing into parents, and they're trying to figure out how do we help keep our kids from being wild and crazy like we were, right? At that point in time, the, the amount of um, sexual partners for women, only 2% had 10 or more sexual partners. By 1990, that had increased to 10%. In 2010, that had increased to 18%. There was an increase of sexuality among our young people, just the way it was. In the 1990s, there was movements that began, like True Love Waits was a movement held in Washington, D.C. The belief was if we can get enough young people to sign a pledge card, that they're, that they're going to refrain from having sex, that they're not going to kiss before marriage. If we can get maybe Josh Harris to write a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which he wrote, right? Then that will sell and that will feed into this thing. There were 210,000 pledge cards that were written in 1994 in the True Love Waits movement. Later on, as Josh Harris has now walked away from the faith and walked away from purity culture itself, he's pushed back on it, and, and so have many in that movement. And what has happened is, we, as we look back at what happened, there is a statistically zero difference between people who've signed pledge cards and people who haven't. Statistically zero. Also, 82% of people who signed pledge cards five years later deny they ever signed them in the first place. And now what we see are people who see the church as primarily a place that, I'm not saying this is fair, I'm not saying it's fair, I'm just saying it's happening. That the reaction to the purity culture is if this is what a church stands for, if they're going to add on to, and here's the pushback, and here's what Josh Harris will push back on, if they're going to add on to the Bible, and they're going to add that you're not allowed to date people, you're not even allowed to kiss before marriage, you're not allowed to, you're going to give, give someone your heart, language that isn't even in the Bible, if we're going to add these things into what it means to be Christian, then I'm out. And I would argue rightly so. Why? Because they are weak and miserable forces. If those are the things that we intend to hold people captive to the heart of Christ. Now hear me. I'm not against. In fact, I would argue for. I would argue for sexual purity until marriage. I believe God has designed sex to be enjoyed by one male and one female in a marriage bond forever. But there's additional things that we add on to that that are tempted good things to try to get people to do the right things and kind of herd them in the right way. All of these things, if we're willing to look a little harder, can be weak, miserable forces. And so what can we do with all of this? What can we do with all this? Let me suggest a couple things. Hopefully I haven't offended everybody in the room. Not yet. I want to encourage us to do this, to review and recast. To review and recast. Here's what I mean by that. To review, first of all, I want to encourage you to ask this question. What habits or traditions were passed down to you as if they were from God? What habits or traditions were passed down to you and passed down to me as if they were from God? Listen, some, some of you may be stuck in your own walk with Christ right now. Some of you may be um, lacking joy. You may be feeling like, I don't know, I don't know where the love went. Like, I, 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 don't know, I don't know where the desire went. I mean, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. But I don't know where this, this went. I guess I might just ask, is it possible? Is it possible that in some way, shape, and form that you have been more a child of the slave woman than the free? In some way, shape, and form, this precious, precarious idea 
that faith in Christ alone justifies you fully, if that idea doesn't have fertile soil to grow, it can't grow. Is it possible that maybe there's some things that have been handed down to you as if they were actually from God? Because this is where the problem comes. When well-intentioned people merge the traditions of man with the commands of God, and then we can't tell the difference anymore. It becomes too difficult to see. And what we feel is enslaved when what Christ did was to set us free. I want to encourage you to ask that question to review. Second question is this under review. What value and what risk is there? What value and what risk is there? So I think there's value under what was behind the purity movement. I get why they moved that way. I want to recapture that. I think there's value underneath, and some of you may have been handed down things relative to, let me, let me pick on a couple of things, relative to a, a devotional life, to church attendance, to maybe the Billy Graham rule of not meeting alone with, with women. Maybe some people have handed down to you things about how you should pray and how you shouldn't pray, what you can listen to and shouldn't listen to, what you should wear and shouldn't wear and what good ladies do and what strong men do. There is value underneath. I want to encourage you not to throw it away. I'm not encouraging throwing it all away. But I want you to be able to assess what is there in terms of risk and where has the traditions of men merged with the commands of God. And even good things like when Paul is picking on the Sabbath, when he's picking on a, a commandment, when he's picking on the Passover, just remember these things would have been highly offensive to people who would have said, no, 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 friend, these are oak trees that are settled in our faith and they give us grounding. To which Paul says, no, the seed idea that faith in Christ alone justifies you cannot grow in soil that isn't fertile and ready for it. Recast it. Can the ethic or the value, can the ethic be redeemed for freedom and not slavery? Because I'm not against sexual purity. In fact, I think it is, a, it is a design of a human being loving creator who knows that we can go off the guardrails and hurt ourselves in ways that we can't anticipate if we don't live with any boundaries. But that's a freedom thing, not a slavery thing. I still believe in the value of devotion to God and being able to engage the Bible personally to pray. I believe church attendance is valuable and connecting with people who strive to walk with him is incredibly valuable. The opening ourselves up in vulnerable places is valuable and very difficult. And so hear me, not against throwing it all away, but can we recast it in terms of freedom and not slavery? I really do believe this is true, that in a world more comfortable with religion than faith, freedom in Christ simply does not grow naturally, but it can grow intentionally. But it can grow intentionally. Just like I don't remember with the same passion the gift of life today, as I did on October 11th, the day after I visited the hospital. Because these moments are precious, and they're precarious. <clears throat> and we have opportunities to let them sit into our hearts and find root in our soul. And this morning, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're stuck somewhere. I don't know if you've for so long seen God in a way that must be, the only way to connect with him is through obedience, 
through traditions, through doing all the right things, through raising the right kind of family and being the right kind of wife and being the right kind of husband, being the right kind of, you know, grandparent, whatever it might be. And if all that you've seen is a need to merge and meld to the traditions of man, friends, there's this idea that Paul fought for and he challenged the deepest things that were a root in the heart of the culture at that time. And said, I'm not an enemy of yours as I'm telling you the truth. But you're a child of the free woman now. You're still the child of Abraham. But you are free. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Let the ethics be redeemed for freedom, but not for slavery. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to engage in a hard but good teaching from Paul. I pray that you would help us to be courageous with our own lives. I pray that you would work in us to help us to see where we have this tendency to want to be justified because we're keeping even good things that were handed down from generation to generation to generation. Father, may we allow all of these things on the chopping block, so to speak, not that we can live in chaos with no order at all. That's not helpful. But that we can keep this precious, precarious idea of faith in Christ alone. That the soil around that will continue to be soft. We can grow this idea in our own lives. That our children will be raised. Our marriages will be ordered by our future careers and our hopes and dreams to be driven by freedom in Christ. Not by slavery to even the best intended traditions of man. Father, we love you. We thank you for the freedom in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we